You have heard said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward do you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Even the pagans do that. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3 and verse 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, insincerity, envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. For you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, the word of God. If we're honest, when we hear Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, we think to ourselves, I wish it were true. I wish that I could love someone who doesn't love me in return. That I could desire good for someone who intends to harm me. It just doesn't seem possible. And then to top it off, Jesus says, be perfect like God. Such words would be laughable, except that Jesus lived them. And he stirred in his followers the conviction that they could too. This process of growth toward transformation of the heart is what the Apostle Paul and the Reformers call sanctification. It takes God's grace to bring us in humility before God and accept God's gift of salvation offered because of Jesus' life-giving work, because of his self-sacrifice and death on the cross to forgive us of our sins and to make us justified before God. Nothing that we bring, but simply to the cross do we cling in finding our acceptance with God. Well, it also takes God's grace to move us to such transformation. In simple terms, Frederick Buechner likens this process to what happens in the story of Beauty and the Beast. It's only when the beast discovers that beauty loves him in all his ugliness that he himself becomes beautiful. Similarly, 
when you or I discover that God really loves us in spite of all our ugliness and unloveliness that we in turn start to become God-like. The forgiven one starts becoming forgiving. The healed man becomes a healing person. And the loved woman becomes loving. It's not possible on our own, not without a transformation of the heart and God's spirit working in us. But it is God's desire to have us bear the image of his son, Jesus Christ. A woman named Margaret found a five-year-old girl among the sand dunes of a beach that she was visiting. The girl had begun to cry out, I want my mommy. But a quick scan of the beach indicated that no such reunion was within sight. And as most children, she probably was warned not to go anywhere with a stranger. So it took some gentle coaxing by Margaret to get her to go with her to the lifeguard station. There, they learned the girl's name was Elizabeth and that the entire beach patrol was out searching for her. Eventually, a man with an anxious look on his face arrived and knelt down in the sand next to his daughter to ask if she was all right. But the relief and beauty of the moment was shattered when Elizabeth threw a handful of sand in her father's face. Her fears provoked anger. Her father brushed the sand away and waited, her arms still wrapped protectively around herself. But soon Elizabeth reached up and hugged him and then began to cry. He rocked her in his arms for several minutes and then picked her up and headed down the beach. Margaret, later reflecting on that moment, wrote, I thought how this experience paralleled my own relationship with God. Like Elizabeth, I too have sometimes lost my way. And like her, instead of first reaching out to God, I become angry and blaming. Elizabeth's father's love for her resembles the way God loves us with understanding and patience. God loves, God's love absorbs our anger, transcends our faults and weaknesses. God waits, watches, forgives, comforts, and protects us when we are lost. I imagine there are some who, as a result of the fires, want to blame God. It's natural to do so. Where were you? How could you abandon me? I thought you were my protector. I thought you loved me. 
we dare not try to correct that emotion because it is simply a reaction to feeling the weight of such loss. Besides, God's love can absorb it and can wait patiently and respond accordingly. When Jesus spoke about God, he also embodied what he said. Our instincts are not to give love to someone who doesn't value it or return it. So when we risk showing love to our neighbor, we're quite sure it is in our best interest to do so. In effect, it means we're loving one of our own, someone who already is part of our family or clan. But Jesus says, let me show you something about God's love. It goes beyond whatever boundaries you consider. It includes love of one's enemy. Anyone can love people who are already like you and love you in return. What counts is love that is more of a risk and uncertain. What constitutes our neighbor is someone who is a fellow human being in need, whose need we know and are in a position in some measure to relieve. We can imagine that. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, love your enemy, someone who intends you harm, but you in turn seek his or her good. This is more than showing a sense of forbearance. It moves beyond that to a, an undeserving act of service. Beyond a refusal to retaliate or repay evil, we're expected to overcome such evil with good. After all, this is how God treats us. In Romans 5, Paul reminds us that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us to reconcile us to God. So be perfect. It doesn't mean to be better than anyone else you can possibly imagine. It means to be comprehensive and complete in your actions of love. The way God is loving toward you. If you're like me, that takes a little longer than a Sunday sermon to, to process and to comprehend. It takes a lot of trial and error. My all-time favorite quote by a clergyman who usually don't come off too well in novels and, and stories and movies is the one from the 1993 movie Rudy. A young man whose dream is to get into the University of Notre Dame and play football there. Unfortunately, he's not very um, 
football-like in his stature. And his grades aren't that great. So he's not admitted, but he works hard. He attends another college and studies hard to become a transfer student. But time's running out. He's down to his final semester in order to be eligible for the football team. So he comes to pray in the chapel. And there he finds a priest who he asks a favor. Father Kavanaugh, could you help? To which Father Kavanaugh answers, Son, in 35 years of religious study, I have only come up with two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not him. Growing up in a holiness tradition, I heard a different message. In effect, it went something more like this. There is a God, and you must try to be like him. When it comes to understanding salvation, most traditions that emerge from the Reformation are in agreement in their belief and practice. To be justified with God, what is necessary to be acceptable and approved by God is a matter of God's grace received by faith. Not an effort or a work on our part, but depends solely on the death of Jesus on the cross, which saves us from our sins and their consequences. By faith in Jesus, we're made right with God, and nearly every Christian tradition shares this starting point. But ask what it takes to live as a Christian and what practices should be given priority. And their traditions diverge. What each group means by sanctification, holiness, godliness, and all the expectations related to them vary greatly. Holiness traditions can be good for cultivating a deeper experience with God. But such an emphasis on being holy can mislead us from loving our neighbor and serving God's purpose in this world. Practice of personal piety can isolate and separate us from the world. As Christians, we're to take seriously the command to love God with all we have and to love our neighbor as ourselves. One cannot be at the expense of the other. When Peter repeats the words spoken by God from Mount Sinai, calling Israel to be his people and to fulfill his purpose in this world, he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter was telling his readers that they too were set apart for God's use, different from the world, yes, but very much sent into the world to bear witness of God's mighty act. Spiritual practices that deepen our relationship with God must also demonstrate God's presence and work in this world. Peter's message follows a pattern similar to that of Paul. You've, you've been given a taste of God's kindness, of God's goodness. 
So you need not continue in your old ways, trying to pose among your peers, using malice, slander, and insincerity to gain an advantage. You no longer live there. That is a place of darkness. God has brought you into his marvelous light. So step in to that light and live there. Let its radiance penetrate deep inside you. In this way, Peter says, you make yourself useful to God. That more than anything is what it means to be holy. We used to sing a contemporary song in this church, and the lyrics went like this, holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness is what you, God, want for me. And I loved that song because, and I love those lyrics because I grew up hearing it more this way. Holiness is what you want from me. That put a lot of pressure on what it means to be like Jesus and to live like him. And every time I failed, I not only thought I was failing God, I thought I should just give up. It's not happening. Spiritual transformation is not a light switch. doesn't go off and on. It is a gradual process of growth that requires God's spirit at work in us and God's grace helping us learn. Rather than an expectation of some spiritual virtue, the idea of holiness expressed in this song and also in 1 Peter is more practical and functional. It serves God's will and God's purpose in this world. As Peter says, salvation is a growth process moving from infancy toward maturity. It's for this reason that you are to rid yourselves of former behaviors meant to elevate ourselves over others because God's not like that. And neither should we be. If we've been treated with love, goodness, and kindness, and God loves and cares for everyone the same way he does us, then wouldn't we want to help people grasp that? I love how Eugene Peterson translates this text and the verse that follows. You are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work. Remember, a priest is nothing but someone who helps people understand and relate to God and helps God relate to people. That's what a priest is about. You've been chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and to speak out for him. 
to tell others of the night and day difference he's made in you. From nothing to something. From rejected to accepted. So don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Isn't that a great line? Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life. Learn to love and live like Jesus did.